So welcome to the GUT Podcast. I'm Mary McLean, Senior Lecturer and Consultant in Gastroenterology at the University of Aberdeen, Scotland, UK, and current visiting research fellow at the National Cancer Institute in the USA. In my capacity as Education Editor, I'm hosting this podcast today. This month, we are discussing the Editor's Choice manuscript entitled Update on Basic and Clinical Aspects of Asinophilic Esophagitis. This is presented by Professors Alex Strauman and Alan Schofer, and I'm delighted to welcome Alex here today. He is based in the Swiss Cynophilic Esophagitis Clinic and Research Network in Basel, Switzerland. So welcome to the podcast today. Your recent advances in clinical practice review reports on eosinophilic esophagitis, and this syndrome has only been formally recognised since the 1990s. So your paper poses a set of distinct questions regarding etiology, pathogenesis, management and treatment of this disease and discusses the latest evidence of each of these as related to clinical practice. So we'll go through each of these points in turn. So firstly, how common is this disease? This first question focuses on the epidemiology of EOE. It was first recognised, as you have already mentioned, in the early 90s simultaneously in USA and in Europe. Soon after, we have reports from Australia, and meanwhile, even from Asia and South America, it seems that EOE spreads spreads over the whole planet. Today, we have good population-based data for EOE coming from North America and from Europe. We know that EOE has a constantly increasing prevalence. And furthermore, we know that currently we have frequencies of approximately one affected patient with diagnosed EOE among 2,000 inhabitants in North America and in Europe. Or in other words, one village, one patient with EOE. These prevalence data are more or less comparable with the data from IBD, like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. So how do patients usually present, and are there any particular clinical characteristics that should alert to a diagnosis of eosinophilic esophagitis? For adults, this is a very simple question, but for children, it is a difficult one. Why? the clinical presentation of EOE is strongly age-dependent. In adults, dysphagia for solids is absolutely the leading symptoms. Going up to obstruction to long-lasting food impactions with the necessity of endoscopic removal of the impacted bolus as a peak of dysphagia. In addition, Somebody more than 50% of the adult patients feel a kind of heartburn. It can be distinguished between GERD and the EOE burning, but it requires a good history. On the other hand, in children, children suffer from pain. Where? In the chest? In the belly? Children have regurgitation or vomiting, can be difficult to distinguish. Children have food refusal, failure to thrive, even diarrhea. The spectrum 
of EOE, of the clinical manifestations of EOE in children is much broader than in adults. For pediatricians, it is therefore a big challenge to think, to recognize EOE only on the clinical manifestations. From a diagnostic perspective, what features on endoscopic assessment are consistent with this diagnosis? Upper endoscopy is clearly the first step in the diagnostic workup of dysphagia. Interestingly, looking at the first publication of the first comprehensive uh, case series, Stephen Atwood in 1993 and my own one year later, the endoscopic science was reported as absent or only unremarkable. Meanwhile, we have learned to scope EOE patients. We have better endoscopes and we have trained eyes. And we recognize several typical features for EOE. It is the landmark study published last year in GUT by Ikuo Hirano. He made a classification of the endoscopic presentation of EOE. And this magic word E-R-E-F-S is a good guideline. E like exudates, R like rings, E like edema, F like furrows, and S for strictures. These five endoscopic signs cover the majority of EOE endoscopic manifestations. And of interest, exudates and edema and furrows represent inflammatory signs, whereas rings and strictures are more signs of a fibrostenotic development of the disease. But using these five letters helps us to assess EOE endoscopically. So does the esophagus function normally in a xenophilic esophagitis, and how should this be assessed? Even in the conceptional definition of EOE, you can find the term clinically by symptoms related to esophageal dysfunction. That means a dysfunction of the transport uh, capability of the esophagus is a uh, essential part of EOE. But the question is how we can assess this dysfunction. X-ray is not very good. Uh, making the compliance, the esophageal compliance with parostat did not give clear results. And even high-resolution manometry has not assessed a clear pattern for EOE. All these methods show some functional abnormalities, but not a pathognomonic EOE pattern. Since few years, we have now a new method, a method, a device which allows us to measure the distensibility of the esophagus using a balloon, measuring the cross-sectional area of the esophagus in relation to the pressure. This 
so-called endoflip device has really the potential to reflect the state of the esophageal function or dysfunction in EOE, but it requires definitely more use in practice before we can say this is the reverence method. But it's the most promising method to assess functional alteration in EOE. But what are the etiological factors in the pathogenesis of this disease? Today, I would say it's still idiopathic, like IBD. But we have several good indicators that EOE is a food-driven or likely even an allergen-driven disease. The first uh, evidence came is based on the findings of diet studies. Kevin Kelly published in 1995 a study using a protein-free elemental diet in children with refractory GERD and a high esophageal eosinophilia. And he achieved a resolution of symptoms and inflammation in more than 90% of his children using this diet uh, over six weeks. That means avoiding a contact between protein and esophageal surface bring EOE in resolution. Afterwards, we have the so-called empirical six-food elimination diet. This was mainly promoted by Pajalvalla, Gonsalves, and Alfredo Lucendo. They avoided on an empirical base the six most critical food categories and achieved in approximately 70% of patients a resolution. After achieving a resolution, they performed a control reintroduction of these food categories, step by step, controlled by endoscopy and histology. And at the end of the day, they found that milk and wheat were the most critical foods for uh, maintenance of EOE, induction and maintenance of EOE. And based on this study, the concept that EOE is a particular allergic reaction, not an IgE-mediated immediate response, but a delayed allergic reaction to several food proteins. Therefore, during the history of EOE, these results changed uh, my attention more and more to direction food allergies. But it's early that we can say it's food responsible for EOE. But the direction is clear. So let's talk about the consequences of this diagnosis. How does the synophilic esophagitis progress in its natural history? It's a very important question. We know that EOE is a chronic disease. The inflammation persists over years. Furthermore, we know that the eosinophil 
is a late-phase inflammatory cell with a lot of repair capacities. This has the consequence that the untreated, long-standing eosinophilic inflammation induces a fibrosis of the involved organ. In the esophagus, the wall thickness increases. We have a loss of elasticity. The wall gets fragile, and we have a strict formation. And finally, uh, important uh, loss of function leading to dysphagia and bolus impaction. This is the natural history of EOE. And this natural history tells us that we should treat the disease. At the beginning, we had the perspective, wait and see, but today we cannot anymore wait. We have to treat, we have to control the eosinophilic inflammation, either by medication or by diet. So let's next consider how we should manage these patients. And I know we discussed this to a degree previously, but are there any dietary-based treatments that can be offered? This question has two aspects. EOA patients are very often intelligent and clever, and they immediately realize that if they avoid certain food categories, if they modify the food, they can avoid dysphagia. They perform by themselves a lifestyle modification. But this kind of lifestyle modification should not be accepted. We should instruct our patient not to accept dysphagia. The other kind of lifestyle modification is coming from doctors, from allergists, from gastroenterologists, focusing on dietary treatment, focusing on allergen avoidance by diets. As I have mentioned, six-food elimination diet was the first one uh, used in adults with success. Six-food means no milk, no wheat, no eggs, no nuts, no soy, and no seafood. These studies were mainly performed in United States, in Chicago area, and one additional in Spain. For me, this diet has a problem. First, personally, I couldn't adhere such a diet. And second, my patient, if I recommend a diet without any milk, without any wheat, without any eggs, without any nuts, patients ask me, doctor, what is allowed to eat? I cannot adhere such a treatment. I was not enthusiastic to promote this extremely invasive diet. This was the stage of the six-foot elimination diet. And now we have new data Four-food elimination diet might be as effective as six-food, only a small loss of efficacy. And most interestingly, one-food elimination diet, avoid milk, a consequent milk-free diet, have an efficacy of almost 40%. 
uh, regarding symptoms and inflammation. And I have to say, to avoid milk, this is doable. Also for me, diets get more and more attractive. And I should, we should more and more promote and we should instruct dietitians that they can uh, implement this information in their uh, instructions. What are the medical treatments available for control of this disease? This, the medical treatment had a completely different approach because EOE has many similarities with asthma, with allergic asthma. Several compounds, several drugs working in asthma were evaluated in EOE. Topical corticosteroids, systemic corticosteroids, leukotriene antagonists, CRTH2 blockers, anti-IL-5 monoclonals. All these drugs had no problem regarding tolerability, but the problem was the efficacy. Only corticosteroids had proven efficacy and swallowed topical corticosteroids even more than systemically administered corticosteroids, and of course with much less side effects. If we use topi swallowed topical corticosteroids, we can expect an efficacy of approximately 70% regarding symptoms and inflammation. And this is a robust, uh, solid efficacy rate. But 70% is not 100%. In the remaining 30%, I would say half of them, we can bring in resolution if we use higher doses. But then we have some concerns regarding uh, systemic corticosteroid side effects. And the other remaining 15% are definitely refractory. And this is a problem. We still have a fraction of EOE patients we cannot treat appropriately with drugs. We need more. We need alternatives. Fortunately, Several trials are now ongoing with IL-13 monoclonals, with new generations here, TH2 blockers, and this is extremely important. So can eosinophilic esophagitis be treated endoscopically, and are there any specific considerations we need to be aware of? Yes, it can be treated endoscopically. Historically, in the early days of EOE, it was dysphagia of unknown origin. And if you read the first publication, the majority of patients were treated with dilation. Dilation has a convincing efficacy on symptoms. Up to one year, the patient can pretty good swallow. But dilation has no effect on the main, on the baseline problem, on the underlying inflammation. 
and therefore for me dilation is a second line treatment if medical treatment or diets don't achieve the goal of the treatment. In 2014, I think dilation, if you don't achieve your therapeutic goal, either by medications or by dietary treatment. Once a diagnosis has been made, are there any monitoring issues that are important? Like traditional IBDs, Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, EOE is a chronic disease. In addition, it's a young disease and we have a huge lack of information regarding the long-term development of this disease. It's not done if you establish the diagnosis and if you start a treatment. You have to follow your patients, like you do it in IBD or in other chronic diseases. 2014, the understanding of the long-term risk, of the long-term consequences of this disorder is still limited. 2014, our experience treating EOE with diets or with medications is still extremely limited. I propose, therefore, to think today in one-year time frames. Start a treatment, and as long as the patient goes fine, make control on a one-year time frame. After one year, come back, speak again with your patients, scope the patients, take histology, ask your pathologists for dysplasia, for complications of using topical corticosteroids, and so on. I, my recommendation is monitor the patients at least on a one-year schedule. So finally, what are the important outstanding questions for future research into eosinophilic esophagitis? As I have already mentioned, uh, the history of AOE has changed. My interest, direction, food processing, food production, and I'm would curious to know what has changed during the last five decades in the production of milk, antibiotic use, the composition of the milk proteins, they are definitely different uh, from milk uh, coming from the 60s of the last centuries. Cows produce at least double as a milk like uh, for 50 years, and the composition of the milk is different. The production, heating of the milk, all this has changed. And my question is, what has changed? And is the milk today a product with a much higher allergy potential than 50 years before? And the same questions for wheat. 
I think we should more and more focus on these staple foods. And in particular, if you see, EOE has started North America, Europe, and then Australia, and now it moves to Japan, it moves to South America, and these areas, we have a tradition of milk and wheat. I have, my hypothesis is that this is a, a critical thing, and we should focus on this. And the second question, important, as I have already mentioned, we need better treatments. As long as we don't know the source of IE, the reason of EOE, we rely on drugs, and our drugs today are limited. We need alternatives. For this subset of patients, we have difficulties to treat. These are my main questions etiology of EOE and pharmacological treatment. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. Thank you to Alex Joyman for joining me today. Thank you very much. Thank you.